The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm and acting as the host and moderator for today's panel. I have with me two of my brilliant esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Chris Drynan and Jessica Beaver. Uh, and amongst the three of us, I'm pretty confident that we could probably come certainly between half a century plus with practicing immigration law. Um, so today's teleconference is really where we're planning to analyze some of the latest regulations and policies of the U.S. government with dealing with immigration-related issues. Uh, as you know, and previously back in May, we had talked about the changes that the Trump administration is making to immigration policies by changing their website and issuing memos. They're just doing crazy stuff every single day. Uh, we have also aired a special teleconference on third-party placements of STEM OPT workers recently, and we will briefly touch upon that. And we will also talk about the unlawful presence memo for FJNM non-immigrants, as well as updated guidance about referring people for issuance of notices to appear or NTAs um, as soon as a person obtains a denial. And finally, the issue, the memo dealing with where the government can issue a denial without having to issue an RFE or a NOID. The craziness goes on and on every single day and every single minute. As we've noted, this is part one. We plan to have part two after maybe a month or two, two months, just to be sure that we can see what's happening uh, and what what's happening with the implementation of these policy memos of the USCIS. So with that, Chris, if I could get started with you to briefly touch upon what is the change in the USCIS position with regard to third-party placements. Yeah, Sheila, this is one of the stranger things we've seen from USCIS recently. Um, USCIS apparently has changed their policy in regard to the requirements for, for STEM OPT. Um, they didn't do this by regulation or, or law or, or a policy memo. They did this allegedly by a change in their website, um, which is, is pretty unique to say the least. Um, so how, how legally binding or how authoritative this is is really an open question because it's just a posting on their website. Um, but it probably at least gives us an idea of USCIS's thinking in regard to STEM OPT. Um, Basically, the change here um, is that USCIS has revised their interpretation of the, the STEM OPT rules by taking a stricter position that STEM OPT workers have to be placed directly at the work site of the employer without any exceptions to satisfy the STEM OPT requirements. Um, there has to be an employer-employer relationship, and the employer is required to provide training and oversight to the STEM OPT uh, student workers. Now, the important things for the employers uh, and their STEM, STEM OPT employees to remember is that according to this USGIS posting on their website, um, all STEM OPT training slash employment 
must take place on site at the employer's place of business to fulfill the, fulfill the, the training requirements. Um, the employer that signs the I-983 form that's submitted to the, to the school's DSO uh, must also be the one that provides the practical training experience. So it has to be the employer who's signing the 983 who's providing, who's providing the training. Um, the employer can assign the supervisory and training duties to its employees or to a contractor, but it cannot assign the training duties or responsibilities um, to an employee or a contractor of a client. Okay, so basically the employer here is has to be totally responsible for the supervision and training. Um, and it cannot be, additionally, it cannot be fulfilled through uh, online or other distance learning requirement. So you could not do this through telephone calls or emails. Um, even if the student visits the employer's site from time to time for training assistance. So you can't have occasional visits to the employer's work site um, supplemented with phone calls or, or online training to satisfy this requirement. Just doesn't work according to USCIS. Um, now consulting companies can still employ STEM OPT workers who with they have a bona fide employment employer-employer relationship um, if they're placed at the employer's work site. Uh, such as working at the employer's internal IT department. This is still acceptable. It's crazy. So basically, it's almost like I almost am thinking, visualizing the multi-law firm. 99% of our work is done by phone calls with clients and consultations. And if the government says, you can't do possibly give proper advice because you're on the phone and not sitting face-to-face, -face, that would shut down pretty much every business in the country mm -hmm. that's relying on the internet or technology or Skype or phone calls. It's just it would. It so would. bizarre. And so how do you come up with a made-up rule that they literally pulled out of thin air to clamp down on consulting companies? And this kind of craziness needs to be challenged and stopped. And I know that the IT Serve Alliance has actually filed a lawsuit against the USCIS, Department of Homeland Security, challenging their interpretation and understanding of how and why IT consulting companies and the whole implementation of this trying to clip the wings of 983 students. So we have to see what how the what the government's going to respond. They usually end up trying to do a motion to dismiss. They try to buy time. They try to come up with every possible reason, as they do with every mm -hmm. single case, to strategize how to throw it out. But it's interesting that we are seeing employers pushing back and resisting mm -hmm. because there's only so much nonsense that a human being can tolerate before you bite back. And we are, we are just so that everyone knows, we are seeing this language in requests for evidence. For sure. We've started seeing more and mm -hmm. more of these. And, you know, people have been saying, has ICE been conducting any site visits on STEM OPD workers? And the fact, the truth is that there, there's not been any site visits. So the whole reason why the government is trying to do this was to protect ICE and allow ICE to do site visits, which is the reason they came up with this change on the website, doesn't make any sense. Basically, it's as usual nonsense. Um, but anyway, I think it finally became more popular and well-known, um, I think back in, in May, a few months later. But back, it was actually in May of 2016 when initially the STEM OPT rule, the revised rules, went into effect. 
And just to reiterate what Sheila and Chris were saying is, yes, it's it's a different position. It's not a change in the law or policy. Um, it was done just on the website. But the most important thing we're, we're seeing since we've had our, even our special teleconference is we are seeing this issue come up in requests for evidence. Uh, we have not seen it in denials yet, but it's important to know that this is how they're kind of using it against employers is by issuing those RFEs. And just what Chris said is the best thing for an employer to do is obviously if they can have them, you know, at their office, they should do that. However, it's very hard when you work in this employer vendor client model, which is not really going away in 2018. Um, And so, you know, ideally trying to have at least a person, a mentor, an instructor at the site is a good idea uh, to, to be with the students, you can fill out the I-983 with that information as well. What about those consulting companies that have STEM OPT workers placed at client sites? What else? Is there anything else that they could do? Is that what you just explained about them putting supervisors and mentors? Yeah, base, basically that's what we're kind of uh, advising people to do with the I-983 is because the government is so keen on this employer-employer relationship and can they, uh, you know, advise and kind of control this routine um, training is to have a mentor instructor from the company to be at that site um, to show that, you know, it's not just a telephone and emails that, that Chris was mentioning, but it's an actual person from the employer overseeing their work. Yeah, and as as uh, Jess and we all just talked about, even though the website change and update was actually made, uh, was placed on the website sometime in January of 2018, the fact is that it wasn't really brought to the attention of the DSOs and the universities and NAFSA and a lot of employers until several months later uh, when it was realized that, oh my God, this is, has been sitting on their website um, causing a lot of this confusion and flurry of activity that we've talked about. So that's the first one. The next one, that w- the next memo or policy that we want to touch upon is the February 22nd, 2018 memo, with, which is a, dealing with contracts and itineraries for H-1B petitions, which involve third-party work sites. So again, this is a memo uh, about workers who are placed off-site. Uh, as fe- on February 22nd of this year, 2018, the USCIS released the memo relating to H-1 petitions who will uh, for workers who will be employed at one or more third party or end client work sites the memo specifically focuses on staffing companies that use the petitioner vendor client relationship what we call the EVC employer vendor client which is very very common as we all know in the IT industry one issue that is focused in this memo is the requirement for non-speculative qualifying employment for the entire duration of the H-1B position. I'd like to know what I'm going to do in three years from now. I don't even know what we're doing to next week with the government changing their memos every day. So if you, somebody asked me what I was doing, I wouldn't even know what we were going to do for 100 of our employees right here. It, the whole thing is so beyond ridiculous. One issue that is focused on in that we talked about is the non-qualifying, the non-speculative qualifying employment. And historically, where contracts and or related documents submitted have only covered a small portion of the period that the H-1B time was requested, the USCIS would often limit the H-1B approval, for example, to a one-year period. And now, although the memo has been in effect for just a few months, we have already seen instances where the USCIS will issue an approval 
for the exact dates of the contract. Sometimes it's just for two or three months. Sometimes it's a date that has even expired because mm-hmm. they take so long just to make a decision. Chris, mm-hmm. what else is touched upon? Well, the new memo makes it clear um, that you need an itinerary if, if you have multiple work locations. That's, a, that's actually a, 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 an older regulatory requirement here. Um, but they've made it clear that if we're talking about uh, an EVC relationship H-1B filing, you need specific dates and locations. Um, a lot of people used to submit vague, sort of vague itineraries of possible work locations, um, just a very, very general, very general information just to satisfy the requirement. Um, this memo makes it clear you need this very specific itinerary, exact dates, exact work locations, or you risk an outright denial. And we'll, we'll talk about that later, actually, Sheila. Um, and for H, in the context of H-1B extensions, uh, the memo also states that employers have to be able to verify that the worker has maintained valid status throughout the entire period of their H-1B employment. Um, without this, USCS may only approve the petition for, for consular processing. Uh, in other words, deny the extension request. Uh, the worker would typically need to depart the U.S. and then re-enter, um, potentially with a new H-1B visa stamp to get back into status. Um, and of course, there are always risks associated with going to a consulate to get a visa stamp. Um, even if you have an approved petition, consulates can issue a, what's called the two, uh, 221G refusal. Um, and the case can be sent to administrative, pros- administrative processing, which in my experience, if the case goes to administrative processing, you're talking a minimum of two to three months, uh, even for, for a straightforward case. Um, and that's even assuming that they, they eventually actually get around to, to adjudicating the visa. Um, This was a problem before Trump took office, but under this administration, uh, the consulates have appeared appeared to be getting somewhat worse and somewhat stricter. Um, And that's the the whole, essentially the whole gist of this administration is to make the whole process more difficult, I think. Um, Now, per this memo, USCS also appears to be expecting more in the way of documents verifying that there's a valid employer-employer relationship and that that it will be maintained through the entire period. So in other words, you have to prove that the petitioner is actually controlling the work of the H-1B employee, not, not a vendor, not an end client. And you also have to prove that this is non-speculative. In other words, that this is work that essentially is guaranteed or close to it. Um, it can't be work that might be there, might not be. You really have to be able to prove this work is here. And you're, you're probably only going to get an approval for that period of time that you can prove. And I would just kind of echo, Chris, the fact that we're seeing RFEs where even if you have that great end client letter that used to be all you needed to proceed, Mm -hmm. they're really looking for contracts, statements of work, purchase orders between each link in the chain. So you really have to kind of over document for this process now because they can, you know, they can deny petitions for that. Um, I also just wanted to echo something that Chris mentioned with itineraries is I know that some uh, employers are used to saying, oh, they'll do some work at the end client site, but I'll also just list my headquarters in case. We don't recommend doing that any longer because of the non-speculative nature. Um, So if they are actually working at an end client, then they're working at the end client, you know, the entire time unless you actually have in-house work. And one thing that's that's interesting, there are existing memoranda that say the minimum minimum approval period should be one year. Um, They've never explicitly revoked any of this, but apparently since we're seeing one or two month approvals, they're not honoring that. that So why don't employ, why don't attorneys and law firms and employers 
refer to those USCIS memos, which have not been specifically revoked, demanding that the USCIS grant at least the minimum one year as required under their memos, because Lord knows they've revoked and changed every possible thing they Mm -hmm. can to harass employers and employees, everybody who's trying to follow the law, pay taxes and do everything correctly, and they're giving them such a hard time. Mm -hmm. I think we need to push back. In fact, just today I had a consultation with somebody who a STEM OPT worker got a change for an H-1B approval starting October 1st, but now found out that there's a NOIR, Notice of Intention to Revoke, on that approval because now they have a whole bunch of new questions about the third-party worksite and what's going on. Is there an employer-employee relationship, speculative employment, uh, you know, right to control? Every possible thing has been come back. Why even bother to approve it? Mm -hmm. Pretend that you're counted against the quota, then revoke it, So are they trying to reuse that number for somebody else? Are they trying to play tricks because now they've cashed the checks? Now you have to pay more money to keep fighting with the government and challenging them? Uh, I'm so glad that companies are starting to sue more and more. Okay, on that uh, troubling note, the next, the third memo that we're going to discuss today, because, by the way, there have been no regulations that the government's passed Uh, because that would actually take, require waiting for notice and comment period following the Administrative Procedures Act and actually pretending to at least give us some semblance of rights as employers and employees and attorneys. They just issue policy memos, Mm -hmm. which when you sue them, then they say, well, it's not binding, so how can you even sue us? It's interesting. So they can, they want to have their cake and eat it too, as they say. So on May 10th of 2018, there was a memo for public comment which talked about the accrual of unlawful presence and FJ and M non-immigrants. And this is the one where, the, where the, it was supposed to go into effect on August 9th of 2018, where basically they talk about the difference between a person who is out of status, which means anybody who, if you're working on an H-1 and you're not getting paid the salary or not going to work, you're out of status, versus if you're unlawfully present, which traditionally meant if you stayed beyond the date mentioned on your I-94 card. And because and the, the difference legally is, of course, unlawful presence will trigger what is commonly referred to as the three-year or 10-year bars, depending on if you were unlawfully present for between 180 days and 365 days. And if it's more than 365 days, then you trigger the 10-year bar if you decide to depart or travel out of the United States. So basically, by way of background, a non-immigrant who enters on an FJ or M status is ordinarily, as you know, admitted for duration of status listed as D slash S on the online I-94 card. And as there is no specific date certain which is listed, those who are admitted on D-slash-S historically have only begun to accrue what we call ULP or unlawful presence upon a formal finding either by the USCIS or a status violation as determined by an immigration judge. And that's been how it's traditionally done. So this memo, like Sheila was saying, this memo has not been finalized, even though it allegedly goes into effect next week. So we'll kind of have to wait to see what the USCIS does. But the new memo basically says you accrue unlawful presence under any of the following conditions. The day after the individual no longer pursues the course of study or the authorized activity or the day after engaging in any unauthorized activity. The day after completing the course of study or program, including any authorized practical training plus any authorized grace period. The day after being ordered excluded, 
deported or removed. So basically, in situations where the individual is admitted to a specific date on I-94, unlawful presence will apply to any of the above situations or following the expiration of the I-94. So this brings up kind of the issue where, you know, students are likely to commit status violations without knowing that may have these harmful effects. And just to give some examples of that, let's let's provide a, a hypothetical situation here. Um, let's take an F1 student who graduates with a degree in biochemistry. The student applies for OPT to perform uh, technical consulting services for a, a pharmaceutical company. Uh, the DSO at the school authorizes, the, authorizes the, the employment and says that the position is sufficiently related to a degree in biochemistry uh, to, to justify the OPT employment. M many months later, this student applies for a change of status to H1B. USCIS comes back and denies the change of status and, and says in its denial that the position was not sufficiently related to the degree and therefore the student committed a status violation by accepting this particular employment. Now by the time that this finding is made in the USCIS decision, potentially more than a year has gone by. Um, and as a result, this student, without even realizing it, has been unlawfully present for more than a year and he or she has triggered a 10-year bar on returning to the U.S. once they leave. And that's just a, a, that's a huge penalty. And this is a penalty under this, this memorandum. Potentially, you could incur without even realizing it's happening. It sounds just beyond crazy. I think these are great cases, again, for lawsuits. But again, individuals are afraid. Employers are afraid. People are afraid to challenge. And we don't. And by the time you come up, fi find out about the decision, you're already unlawfully mm -hmm. present. So can you even sue the government when you're out of status or unlawfully present? You potentially could, but you're continuing to accrue unlawful presence. And so in the meanwhile, the government can start a deportation or removal uh, against you. The whole thing is so unfair. It's so, so strongly uh, violently, un patently unfair that it's not even close to reminding you of what America and the U.S. Constitution stand for. Well, the idea that USCIS could determine that someone has been retroactively unlawfully present for for a potentially a year plus is just it, it's hard to believe, and it's it's tough to it's tough to advise anyone when you have this this level of uncertainty in the process. Absolutely. So, on that note, let's go to the next memo, which is the June twenty eighth. 2018, which is the updated guidance for referral of cases and issuance of notices to appear or NTAs in cases which involve inadmissible and deportable aliens. So as some of you may know, what is an NTA? The NTA is what's called a notice to appear. It's the charging document that is issued to a foreign national who is deemed to be removable from the United States. It is very similar to a formal complaint in the civil law context, and essentially it's a notice to start formal court proceedings. And so when a person receives an NTA, the individual must appear before an IJ or immigration judge. The immigration judge, after reviewing the evidence and the law, determines whether the person should in fact be removed from the United States. The foreign national or the lawyer representing the individual will then have the opportunity to present arguments before the court regarding eligibility for relief from removal and why the person should be allowed to legally stay in the United States. And as, as, uh, as Sheila mentioned, yes, you, you have an absolute right to fight this case in immigration court. Uh, however, that's not as, as simple as it seems, and it, it carries its own risks. Um, 
For one thing, in most situations, while you're waiting for your court date, while your, your removal proceedings are going on, you're continuing to accrue unlawful presence. So if you, you pass 180 days, you're starting to trigger the, the, unlawful, the, the, the three-year bar on reentry pursuant to the unlawful presence penalties. Uh, and this is not a quick process. The immigration courts right now are heavily, heavily backlogged. Um, I, can, I can tell you I recently got, a, got an immigration court hearing notice in 2021. Um, so heavy, heavy backlogs, very, very long delays here. Um, and if you lose an immigration court and are ordered removed, that's, that in and of itself is a five-year bar on reentry to the United States. Um, and another thing it's important to remember, once your case is filed with the immigration court, once you are in removal proceedings, if you leave, just decide to leave on your own without permission from the court, you have self-deported. So if you have, by leaving, you have deported yourself and triggered the five-year bar on reentering just by leaving. Um, now, for a lot of people, given these, these constraints here, it might be better once the NTA is issued, if an NTA is issued, to try to negotiate with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, essentially to agree to voluntary departure, to leave on your own without, without the removal proceedings going forward. Um, but this is all very much up in the air at this point. We don't, we don't know how these NTAs are going to be issued. We don't know how the process is going to go forward. So it's, it might be very difficult to, to act, even even get an, a, a DHS attorney to agree to this. And I was just going to say, as, as of July 30th, the USCIS even posted on their website that because they were not able to basically issue operational guidance within 30 days of the memo coming out, essentially the implementation of this memo was postponed until the operational guidance is issued. So yes, we're talking about what's to come because this memo is extremely important, but also, right now, it's technically not in effect until this operational guidance is issued. When it's issued, we won't know until we until the government lets us know. And for USCIS, it's wise that they issued that on uh, July 30th of 2018, saying that we have to wait for operational guidance because this is not easy. How are they going to be able to give dates and times for court hearings? Because an NTA which doesn't have the specific location, the date, or the time, basically is a violation, is an improper NTA, and hence mm -hmm. can be challenged on its face. And there's a whole bunch of legal uh, ramifications because of the U Supreme Court mm -hmm. case which of Pereira versus Attorney General, month. which just came out mm -hmm. in July, uh, June or July of 2018. So there's a lot of stuff that's brewing, and it's wise that the USCIS did this because, honestly, the amount of time, effort, work that for them to be starting to issue NTAs when that is not supposed to be the focus of their work and that it should be a separate, actually, a legal challenge, should be a potential lawsuit because the job of the USCIS was to create and provide service to people, not to mm -hmm. start deportation and removals, which is ICE, uh, ICE's responsibility and Department of Homeland Security's mm -hmm. responsibility. When in two back in two thousand and three, when CIS was created, was created as a separate agency, uh, different from the U old Immigration and Naturalization Service, because their focus there was it was combined. It was also the removal arm and the service arm, and they created this. So I think under the regulations and under the Department of Homeland Security Act, there could be a very very good argument to say that the government is not even allowed the USCIS isn't allowed to issue. NTAs in situations. Mm -hmm. Right. And these specific situations that this memo talks about are cases in which fraud or misrepresentation is substantiated or where the applicant has abused a program related to public benefits. 
basically the USCIS will issue an NTA even if the case is denied for reasons other than fraud, or they can. Um, also, criminal cases in which an applicant is convicted or charged with a criminal offense or has committed acts that are chargeable as criminal offenses, even if the criminal conduct was not the basis for the denial or ground of removability. Basically, the USCIS may refer cases involving serious criminal activity to ICE before the adjudication of an immigration benefit request pending before the USCIS without issuing the NTA first. Also, an NTA can be issued in which the USCIS denies a Form N-400 application for naturalization on the basis of good moral uh, character grounds because of a criminal offense. Um, Just a reminder, those that may have criminal issues always seek the advice of an immigration attorney before you really potentially file any type of application. And the the last real reason about NTAs, which has most people kind of, you know, shocked by this memo, are cases in which upon the denial of an application or petition where an applicant is unlawfully present in the U.S., the USCIS could inevitably issue an NTA. So let's say you've filed for an H-1B petition, going back to the February memo mm-hmm. that, that we talked about, and you don't have all the right contracts, purchase orders, maybe then client's only willing to give certain things, and you know you don't have an existing I-94 card, and you get a denial, you may be faced with, with going to immigration court. Um, even though this is not in effect and they're going to list operational guidance, we can't stress enough how important it is to speak to an attorney before, you know, leaving the U.S., filing a petition, anything, just to make sure you know all of your options and so you also cover yourself from future harm. Okay, thank you, Jess. Um, so next we touch upon the July 13, 2018 memo, which gives the USCIS permission to issue outright RFEs or NOIDs, notices of intentions to deny, without with outright de- denials, without really having to issue any kind of RFE or NOID. Um, and the idea really, I guess, was to discourage frivolous or substantially incomplete filings. It's not meant to penalize innocent oversights or mistakes or misunderstandings or not even mistakes or misunderstandings. What if you actually file what you think is a sufficiently valid petition and now with the ever-changing expectations and unrealistic demands of the government, they come out with new uh, inform- new documents or new criteria that needs to be satisfied out of thin air, you now potentially are considered to have been in violation. Interestingly, this goes into effect on September 11th of 2018, I'm sure the date was not just a coincidence. It is to protect the country from so-called immigrants, which is interesting for a nation mm-hmm. built largely by immigrants and for immigrants and their mm-hmm. children and their descendants. Um, Chris, do you want to share some examples with us? Sure, Sheila. And there are some examples in this memo uh, that talk about these these outright denials and, and situations where this may be possible. Um, for example, they talk about a waiver a- waiver applications that require that you show extreme hardship uh, to a qualifying relative. Um, applications like an I-601 or an I-601A. Uh, and if these are submitted without, basically without any evidence of hardship, they say they can deny this without an RFE, which is, is uh, uh, interesting, to say the least. Um, and they also talk about family-based visa petitions um, that are not authorized by the law. For example, a, rel- a, a relationship that doesn't justify the approval of a visa petition. That's That one is nothing new. Um, but the one about re- uh, outright denials of waiver applications just because you didn't provide any evidence of hardship, 
that is definitely something new. Uh, another category of potential denial, outright denials they talk about, are whether regulations, the statute, or the form instructions require particular evidence to be submitted with the initial filing. Um, so it's very important to check the instructions to make sure that you're submitting everything that is required to be submitted. The best example here probably is an I-864 affidavit of support that needs to be uh, submitted with a with a family-based uh, with a family-based 485 filing. Um, that is a that is a statutory requirement. So they're saying they if you don't submit that, they can deny it outright. They don't have to ask for it. Um, now there are some litigations. There are litigation other court cases that could change all of this. For example, DACA uh, is based on. Uh, prior guidance, it's not affected by this. It has its own rules. And some things are going to have their own rules and not be affected by this memo. So basically, what does this mean for applicants and petitioners? Basically, you need to file with everything. You know, we kind of have been focusing on the H-1B petitioners because employers are, are listening. Because although right to control and end client documentation is not required by regulation statute or form instruction, we do have the non-speculative memo that came out in February of 2018. Also, even looking back at the I-129 instructions, even if you've been doing these for years, talk about showing evidence that the proposed employment is a specialty occupation. You know, how much evidence is enough? We don't know. Um, a copy of a written contract or summary of an oral contract between the petitioner and the beneficiary. The itinerary. Now, that has been, you know, in the regulations before, but now more than ever, you have to make sure you're not missing any piece, the LCA, making sure that all your petitions are put together with as much evidence as possible. So, one, you don't get an outright denial, uh, you know, and two, if you get the request for evidence and, you know, need to connect all of the chains or the links in your chain, for example, like I mentioned before with end client letters, contract, statement of work, purchase order, basically trying to file with everything everything you have. Yeah, you know, I really hope that this memo is the bark is louder than the bite because the two examples that they've given about the waiver application, you know, not having the basic required information where the person fails to show extreme hardship to the qualifying relative or, you know, missing out, missing the leaving out the I-864 in an aff uh, affidavit of support in a family-based case. Those are very fundamental and important documents and critical. But what Jessica just talked about, you know, the non-speculative nature of employment, the end client letters, the memos, the projects, the dates, the employer-employee relationship, right of control, that's like she just pointed out, nowhere in the statute and the regulations and the guidance, nothing. Um, hopefully this was just meant to train new officers uh, that you are allowed to give outright denials and not more. But knowing the climate today, knowing the attitude that we have in the Trump administration of being anti-immigrant to an extent that is unheard of or unimaginable, um, really we, can't, we it's difficult to give them the benefit of the doubt at this point. But I'm just throwing that out there, mm -hmm. hoping, because right. the examples in, in and of themselves don't look as scary. But as they say, the devil is always in the details and it's how is it actually implemented. Right, and, and basically just kind of bringing all these memos together is you have these situations where the H-1B petition, if they feel like it doesn't have enough evidence and they give it an outright denial, you know, you may not, uh, you may not only be out of status if you're unlawfully present, then you may get an NTA to go into immigration court. Mm -hmm. um, Another example is basically if you're changing from F1 to H1B and you the USCS makes a finding that the student violated their status, you may have unlawful presence, you may have even triggered a bar like Chris mentioned mm -hmm. if it's so far mm -hmm. behind. Yeah, I mean, 
So as you can see by us touching upon these latest four or five USCIS policy memos just from the year 2018, the constant changes, the constant sort of literally them stirring the pot, so to speak, is scary. It bodes really badly for IT consulting companies and their employees, uh, many of whom these students have been on F1 STEM optional practical training for two or three years, and they're retroactively going back and applying policies and issuing noirs now on policies that didn't exist when they started to work. So how would they know what would happen in the future? Um, and you know, you're seeing that each of these memos continues to gradually, literally throttle IT consulting companies, their employees, international students, by making it more and more and more difficult for them to obtain approvals or to continue to stay here with some peace, semblance of peace of mind. But always, it's very, very important, as you know, to have a proactive immigration lawyer or legal team, whether it's within your company or the company's lawyer or hiring multi-law firm on your side, um, because unlike before, where it was always helpful to be far more aggressive and proactive, today, I think it's essential and critical. And for those who are not able to keep up or feel like you didn't take detailed notes, a lot of each of these memos has been analyzed and written about on multi.com, in the multi-bulletin, multi-forum, multi-chat. We have all this wonderful plethora of information to ensure that people are kept updated with the latest changes. As I mentioned earlier, at the start of the teleconference. This is part one, where we go over the policies and what's happening or what's written in the memos. And part two, hopefully in a month or two, we wanna see what's happening with the implementation, whether we're seeing more, we're all seeing RFEs, but whether it's resulting in denial so we can actually file those lawsuits so that multi-law firm will air part two to basically monitor what's happening from now until then. On that somber note, myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of myself and my two esteemed colleagues here, Chris Drynan and Jessica Beaver, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us, and we hope that we have better news next time. Have a great day. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.